Well, good morning. And it is good to see you guys here and also online. They had this in a basket right up there. There was a napkin over it, but I could still smell it. This is fresh bread. My word. You didn't think I was going to take a bite, did you? There's no way I can open that up as hungry as I am. You know, I've been, this is the only day in the week I work, but I've been working all morning. What is it about bread? It's so significant for us as human beings. It's been the staple of societies, cultures, for thousands of years. It's symbolic regarding of what will most fully and most quickly and most conveniently and most accessibly address our hunger. People going on a journey, they would take bread. People gathering around to commune with each other, you, you break bread together. You head to Israel and there's a very large lake referred to as the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. That sea looks pretty benign at times, not that big. People say, really, that's a sea? And it's been called that for generations. But it's unique in terms of where it is or where the mountains are around. You can get some violent storms rising up. In fact, last week we heard about one of those storms with Pastor Sean talking about Jesus walking into the midst of the storm, calling Peter out. It was at that same time he called Peter out to walk on the water. Earlier that same day, Jesus had fed over 5,000 people. Actually, it was probably more like 12 to 13,000 folks, 5,000 men plus women and children. It was in this region, not too far from where this photo was taken. Just in the northeastern corner of that Sea of Galilee is a village called Capernaum. You can still visit the ruins today. And I've been there several times over the years, a couple of times with a guy named Ray Vanderlaan, who's an amazing friend and scholar. And there is a lot of history that goes with Capernaum. It was founded about 150 BC. By the time that Jesus was doing his ministry, it's about 1,200 people, they estimate, in terms of population. You think that's pretty small? Actually, it's pretty big for that region at that time. And there's a synagogue there. Right next to the synagogue are some, some artifacts, archaeological artifacts, some tools made out of some of the black rock that's, that's unique to that region. And we took a photo there because some of these are for ultimately making bread, for grain, crushing it. And I wanted to, to companion that photograph with a photograph of the synagogue itself. So this guy took a photo of us there at the synagogue and we can go to the other, that gives you some scale there. This is on the exact footprint where the synagogue that Jesus taught in, in Capernaum. Some of what you see is first century, but most of what you see is second to third century, but it is certainly on the exact same footprint of when Jesus was there. Now, the reason I want you to have that in your mind is to 
to, to have, I mean, the, the scriptures are not just pages, they're, they're, they're place and they're plot. And so it's in this synagogue that Jesus said something profound, something that I'm praying will greet you front and center in your journey and greet us as his people. In John chapter 6, and so you've got this synagogue and just outside there's that, those tools for crushing the grain. Verse 33, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives what? What? Gives life to the world. And I hear Jesus saying it in that synagogue to these people, very faithful people, but very religious people. For the bread of God, what you're hungry for, every one of us is coming to this place with hunger and thirst. That's, that's true of every, every generation. What are you hungry for? And Jesus says, I'm the bread that you're hungry for. Sir, they says, well, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. He says, I am bread for your hunger and for yours. And for yours, and for yours, what are you hungry for? A couple of weeks ago, Arlene and I saw Les Miserables with some good friends, and I've seen it numerous times, the Broadway musical, and it's based on Victor Hugo's classic novel. It's this triumphant and beautiful and poignant and painful portrait of grace and legalism and victory and relationship and intimacy and love. It's brilliantly done, but how does it all begin? Because of a loaf of bread. Jean Valjean, the lead character, steals a loaf of bread. He desperately wanted it, not for himself, but for his sister, a young mom starving. In fact, Hugo writes this, if there is anything more heartbreaking than a body perishing for lack of bread, it's a soul which is dying from hunger for the light. What Jesus was saying in that synagogue on the shores of the Sea of Galilee is you're hungry. Yes, you know hunger physically hunger for, 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 for bread, but I'm the bread of life. So what are you hungry for? Purpose? Forgiveness? Healing? Companionship? Intimacy? Significance? He says, what are you hungry for? There's not a person in this place that didn't walk through those doors, not a person online that didn't click connect who doesn't have hungers. And Jesus says, what you're hungry for, you are not going to be able to provide for yourself. Ultimately, I alone am the bread here. Because what you're hungry for is to live, to flourish, to thrive. Now, 
Most human beings would not put it in the context of what I'm hungry for is to thrive to the glory of God, but that's what Jesus came to say. He says, one, they go together. If you're going to thrive, you have to understand who you are in God's creation, and that is to thrive, which is why our vision here at Northland for this season, this chapter, is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. The way that a lot of people say, yeah, I want to be fully alive, but what Jesus is saying, the only way, place you're going to become fully alive is in me. In John 10.10, he says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. The thief comes to rob you of that which will ultimately sustain you as a human being. It robs you of all the life-giving sustenance, and and then you end up focusing only on heart-beating and lung-breathing issues and just sustenance. He says, you know you're hungry for that, but you're hungry for more than that, and I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, which is why we're going through this series that we're calling Awaken. It's a journey through John's gospel, and John says the point of the gospel is not to become a religious, but to become alive to the glory of God. John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive, somebody who has learned What does it look like for me to thrive as a human being is to realize that the nourishment for what I ultimately need can only come from Him. And so Jesus, in that little synagogue, continued. Verse 25, John 6. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, you can pick one up at the welcome desk as our gift to you. You can follow along online, or if you've got a Bible with you, turn to John 6, and when they found him on the other side of the lake. So there, a lot of people are figuring out, wait a minute, uh, did did he actually come with them in the boat? How did he get out there? All of that, these these little whispers and rumors are circling, because Jesus, remember, walked out to them and then hitched a ride. Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, he knows. You and, my, you and I have a, this huge tendency to superficialize what we're ultimately hungry for. I don't know if superficialize is a word, but I think it's a good one. I'm into making up words these days. So we stay surfacy. And he says, you guys are after me just to, for the physical bread. Just to take care. You know what? You're coming to me. You want to do the religious things so, so you can get the right amount of money and maybe the, the re- relief for uh, a, a, a bad living situation and so forth. There are all those things important, of course, but ultimately there's something going on in us that, say, let's say money cannot provide. Billionaires have proved that point. And he said, do you do not work for food that spoils, but food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He says, I want to give you that eternal life. And it's not, that's not a synonym for heaven. Eternal life is a quality of existence, of intimacy with God, and being, being flourishing in that relationship I was originally intended for, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. And then they ask Him, what must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Now, they're thinking, oh, great, we're well, going to give us some religious ritual to do. He says, the work of God is to believe, is to believe. 
in the one that he sent. So we've talked about belief numerous times, and we'll continue to as long as we hold the gospel high, we'll have to talk about belief. And I've used the illustration of a chair. Believe, I believe in this chair. Right now I say I, I could believe in that chair. I'm not saying I believe in this chair until I'm doing this. I'm actually trusting this chair to sustain me in a way that I could not sustain myself in this, at this angle. Jesus says, here's the work of God, belief. Exhibit trust for Him to provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. It's that believing that's not just a religious nod of the head, but it's me adjusting the cadence of my life to be a life that demonstrates my belief in Jesus, whether I'm meeting with a client or cooking dinner or going to a funeral or taking an exam or having some quiet, having some smiles, having some grieving time. John 20, 31, he says at the end of his gospel, we look at this often because it keeps us on track for understanding that John's purpose and agenda in his gospel, he says, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's so many people that say, well, that's it. You believe? Hey, I believe. Did you, have you believed yet? No, you need to believe. Once you've believed and I believe, good, we can go on our merry way and we'll get to heaven someday. It's, it's, it's not less than that, but it's way more. He says, and that by believing. So it's present tense. It's not just past tense in my journey if I'm a follower of Jesus. It's present tense that by believing, I may, I may experience life in His name. And experiencing life in His name has a lot to do with me experiencing Him as bread. Not literal bread, but bread for what I'm ultimately hungry for. But it all hinges on believing because that believing kicks into experience three realities. And it's cyclical. It's not a death cycle. It's a life-giving cycle. I believe these realities come to bear. These realities start being experienced. I believe more. Here they are. Let's go back through this text. I'm going to ask a favor. It's a large text of Scripture here. Large body of Scripture. Don't put it in neutral when we read these passages. I want to encourage you, read along with me. Engage. Let the Word of God that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews said, piercing down to bone, to marrow, to my soul. So don't just say, okay, he's reading a passage of Scripture. I'm going to check my text, and then I'll come back when he says something. Let me tell you something. Reverse it. If you've got to check, check a text, check a text when I'm talking. But when the Word of God speaks, listen. So I'm going to ask, can you make that deal with me? When we read these large, large pieces of Scripture, you're going to read along and engage. Yes? Yeah. All right. Here we go. We're going to go through this text. Three realities that hinge on my belief that related, both the cause and effect. Reality number one, this believing generates an awareness that the Father is at work in me. God the Father is at work in me. So when I'm believing, I'm not just engaging in religious rituals. I'm engaging in a relationship of trust. Go back to the text, verse 60. You guys going to read along with me? You don't have to read out loud, but you're going to concentrate, yes? So they ask him, what sign then will you give what we, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you. So get this, Jesus was continually calling people, sometimes in a very firm way, other times more gently, but always calling people out of their religiosity that they were relying on and shifting from their religious systems and rituals to the Father. These people in this synagogue, it was a religious service at the time, and Moses was their guy. And so they're thinking, okay, yeah, I, what, what can you do for us here? Uh, Moses took care of stuff, and Jesus said to them, verse 32, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father. 
What I'm about here is not restoring you to some right connection with Moses. I'm restoring you to your Abba. And people hadn't spoken of God as Abba before. Yes, as Daddy, but not in, an, in a sacrilegious or, or cavalier manner. He says, it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, because what you're hungry for is bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Gives what? Gives life. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. He says, I've got an agenda. It's the will of God. The will of God is I'm coming after you for my Abba who wants to know you and love you, and I'm going to get you home. I'm going to take care of the sin that's been a barrier between you and Him, and I'm going to lead you into life, and I'm going to do that for you and to you. And no power of hell will snatch you out of my hand, he says, in a different place. He says, and you believing awakens you to the reality that the Father is is at work in you. He's shaping you in me for the new heaven and the new earth. And as any good religious group of people would do, they grumbled. Are you kidding me? At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Now, I want to defend them a little bit. They said, no, wait a minute. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? In other words, we saw this kid in middle school. He was on the middle school basketball team. Now he's talking about being from God. How can he now say, I I came down from heaven? Jesus says, stop it. Start believing. Stop just looking at what you think is the truth and listen to the truth. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. So the reason that I am here is because God's got an agenda in your life and journey. And it's not just help you with the job and not just help you with your relationships. It's to, to restore your humanity to His smile, to His glory, and prepare you. But it's a matter of you paying attention to those hungers. And your hunger for purpose doesn't guarantee you're going to find purpose. Your hunger for companionship doesn't guarantee that you'll find companionship. Your hunger for forgiveness doesn't guarantee that you'll find forgiveness. What C.S. Lewis said is, what our hunger does It might not guarantee we're going to find what we're hungering for, but it does guarantee that what we're hungering for does exist. Purpose and forgiveness exists. The question is, will I bring my hunger to that which can supply it? And it's the Father being at work in me for His agenda and me trusting that. Philippians chapter 1. 
Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And what will enable me in my journey and my believing is believing that today the Father, God the Father is at work in me. And even though some days I might go three steps forward, other days I go two steps back. He's going to complete it. Vincent Van Gogh, some of you know his art, just met an artist, uh, a sculptor just before this service. Van Gogh's this amazing Dutch painter, but he was a pastor's kid, if you know anything about his life. And he wanted to be a pastor, but he was, had some idiosyncrasies about his personality, and he was jettisoned by the religious crowd, stiff-armed, wounded. I know that's a shocker that religious people could wound someone. He abandoned the church and even God for a while, had bouts of depression. You could see it in his art. And some of the darkest days, what art historians have, have in analyze, analyzing his, his art have said, the color yellow to Vincent van Gogh was a symbol of, of, of the truth of God, the hope of God. And in his darkest moments, very little yellow was there. It wasn't attainable. There was one example, his starry night, one of his most famous paintings, you can see it, that the yellow is out there in the distance, but we, it's really not that prevalent in our lives. You can look at that village and every building has a little bit of the truth in it, except for one building that has none in it. What is that building? The church. But as his life progressed, later in his life, and a lot of people say, would he commit suicide? People are not, not sure how he died. He died as a flawed man, but he died on the upswing. You can see it in the more and more dominance of that color yellow in his art. In fact, the raising of Lazarus was one of his latter paintings, and you can see yellow is everywhere. But not only that, if you've ever seen any of his self-portraits, take a look at who Lazarus looks like. He put himself in the tomb. He's not done with you. And Jesus says, you want to know the work of God to do? And some of us say, yeah, tell me what to do. I want to do something that will get God to like me again. You cannot do anything that would get God to like you any more than he already does. He says, believe. That the Father is at work in you, drawing you home. Second reality that belief connects us with is not only God the Father being at work in us, but secondly, this, the Spirit of God speaking to us. Go back to the text. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard the Father has learned from, and learned from Him comes to me. So Jesus is saying, listen guys, as you are believing, there's an aspect of this in which you're going to be taught. And throughout His ministry, Jesus attributed the power of the teaching to the Spirit. In the upstairs room, the night before He's crucified in John 14, He told them this. He says, I'll ask the Father and He'll give you another advocate. This is John 14, verse 16. To help you and to be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him and he lives with you and will be in you. In other words, you're believing 
And he's going to be in you. He goes a little on to say in verse 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. When you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit, Christ's Spirit took up residence in you. That's what Pentecost was all about. He said, I'm going to go in order to come. I'm going to go in order that I can send my spirit. You want me here, but here I'm confined to one physical body. I go and I, my spirit will inhabit you, will inhabit you. In fact, what's going to make you fully alive is me, my spirit taking up residence in you. John 6 says the Spirit is the one who gives life. And in John 6, 14, 15, and 16, he says he's the teacher. And all of us need to navigating, uh, we need help navigating the darkness. And Jesus says, believe, and the Spirit will be speaking. And as the Spirit speaks, believe more. But this Trinitarian beauty of belief isn't complete until you and I get the third. It's not just God the Father believing God the Father's at work in me and He's going to complete His work. Not just believing that God the Spirit is speaking to me and bringing to remembrance what I need to know for right now, maybe not all there is to know, but thirdly, believing connects me with this reality and it's God the Son being enough for me. Being enough. Being bread for me. And walking in that enoughness. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You guys remember? Enoughness? And I talked about, I wish that word was in the dictionary. I, somebody emailed me, a friend emailed me the next week and said enoughness is in the dictionary. And they sent me a link and they also had added my use of the word enoughness in there. So now, doggone it, I'm in a dictionary. So uh, maybe superficialized, we can put it there. But it's that enoughness. What he's talking about is what are you hungry for? You know what you're hungry for? Enough. And I can provide it. Go back to the text. You guys going to read along with me here? Follow along? Verse 46, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. The one who believes has. Right at that moment, eternal life is not a synonym for heaven. It, it, it's a relationship, an intimacy with Him. I'll experience eternal life in an undiluted way in heaven, but when I believe, I experience it right now. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. Not just physical bread. Here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You see that last little, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, five words. The last two on the middle line, this bread, the first three on the next, is my flesh. What? I guarantee you could have heard the gasps in that synagogue. Hey, first of all, you're saying you're, you're the bread of life. Second, you're saying you're the bread from heaven. And now you're saying the bread is your flesh? You must have gotten hit on the head when you were playing basketball in middle school. What's he saying? Guaranteed, three years later, fast forward to three years, go from that synagogue in Capernaum to the upstairs room in Jerusalem. 
It's the night before Jesus is crucified. It's about three years later. He says something guaranteed the disciples remembered that day in Capernaum. Matthew chapter 26, verse 20. Uh, verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he says, take and eat. This is my body. This is my body. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you. He will drink it again. But it'll be in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, where he was betrayed and then followed by a mock trial and then followed the next day by the crucifixion and three days later by the resurrection that validated that he was who he was claiming to be. Forty days later, they saw the ascension and then the Spirit came. They didn't understand all of that that night in that upstairs room, but they at least recognized that phrase about eating his body and his body being flesh. Now fast forward, rewind again, back to Capernaum, go three years earlier, pick it up in the next verse that we stopped at a moment ago, verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, he doesn't back off. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. What you want, what you came into the place hungering for, you will not find until you come to me and have what I'm offering you, which is me. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, whoever goes deep with me and consumes who I am, has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Oh, your heart was beating and your lungs were breathing, but you weren't living. And you are hungry and thirsty to live. So come to me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate man and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum about bread and wine about grain and grape. A couple of years ago, I was speaking in Barcelona, Spain to the leadership, actually the uh, global leadership of Crew, a great ministry that's headquartered here in Orlando. Afterwards, Arlene and I took a couple of days, went up to an area called Rioja in Spain, and we had a couple of days together. And then I wanted to do a pilgrimage hike that I had heard about for many years on a pilgrimage trail called the Camino de Santiago that starts in, Spain, in France and goes all the way to the coast in Spain. And I wanted to hike for about four days. That's all I had time for. People do it sometimes for weeks. But I had four days. I wanted to do it. 
But it was 105 degrees in the middle of the day, and Arlene said, okay, you go, you go right ahead and uh, enjoy. And plus, she was blessing me because the introvert in me, just having some quiet and some prayer time. So I took off. There weren't that many people on the trail because it was so hot. There's one particular day that I, I noticed this field of wheat. And I stopped and just looked at it. It looked endless. And then I, I walked out into it. There's nobody around. There were no, no trespassing signs. So I kind of did the gladiator thing <laughs> and took some grains and looked at them closely. And this passage from John 6 came to mind. But then I looked on the other side of the road and saw something that caused John 6 to even be louder in my mind. It was June, so the grapes were just beginning to head towards what they refer to as Verizon. And then I got back up on the road and I took it in. On one side was grain, on the other side was grape, on one side was bread, on the other side was wine. And I sat down in that road and prayed and smiled and there were some tears. Is this, is that, is Jesus using the bread and the wine as a symbol of His sacrifice for paying a price on the cross that it would take you otherwise eternity to pay? His broken body is shed blood. So is the bread and the wine symbolic of His sacrifice or is the bread and wine symbolic of the satisfaction and the sustenance that His sacrifice brings? Huh? Yes. The beauty of the brilliance and the brilliance of the beauty of Him saying, you're hungry and thirsty for the two basic points of sustenance. Physically, same is true for you as a human being. The only way this is going to happen is for you to trust another aspect of this symbol, my body being broken and my blood being shed. You think you can figure your way out of this hunger. You're not going to be able to. No matter how many enviable homes you own, boats you own, cars you own, vacations you do. Isaiah 55 verse 1, come all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money. And the reason the prophet's saying this is because guaranteed, guaranteed, what you and I are ultimately hungry for, we cannot buy. So come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? Why spend your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ye ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. 
Every human being is wired, is hungry and thirsty to live, to flourish. Now, they, we don't put it together that it's to the glory of God, but Jesus comes to say, I'm here to tell you that's what you're ultimately thirsty for. And so what I want you to do is regularly eat and drink in remembrance as a reminder of both my sacrifice and the satisfaction that comes from you submitting to my sacrifice. We call it the Lord's Supper because it was the supper that the disciples had with him the night before he gave his life. We refer to it as sacrament. It's a sacred thing. It's a holy moment. Holy communion. Communion vertically, but also horizontally. Vertically, communion with God, relating with them, being reminded that we're loved, that our debt has been paid, and doing it in the context of community. Eucharist, Greek for thanksgiving. It's to be grateful together. Mass is from the Latin missive that means dismissive. We would do it and you're dismissed now to go back into your lives now that you've calibrated. But here's a problem that we fall into in the midst of something so sacramental and so holy and so beautiful. We all do this. We ritualize it. We superficialize it. And we miss the power of Jesus saying, eat this regularly, it's my body broken for you. Drink this regularly, it's my My blood shed for you. And we become a fast food, religiousized culture. This has become a cavity sized wafer and a thimble sized sip. Nothing wrong with that. But how about every now and then? Chewing, savoring. Gulping. Tasting. Because some of you right now need to be reminded, not in a quick flyby, a drive-through, oh yeah, Jesus has made a sacrifice for you and wants to satisfy that deepest hunger. You need to settle in. Robert Robinson was an English pastor in the 18th century. In 1757, he's also a poet, beautiful poet, wrote a poem called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. If you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard it. But he walked away, wounded, a lot of different things converged, left vocational ministry, left the pastorate, actually left England, went over to France. Far from God, he thought. 
And one evening he was in a carriage with a Parisian socialite, a friend of his, I don't know if it was a, 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 a girlfriend or just a friend, not sure, but this, this woman, it was her carriage, he's riding with her. She had just come to Christ in the last few days and she was reading a book of English poetry. And she said, Robert, listen to this one. And she read it out loud to him. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sink that grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of thy redeeming love. And she went on to read the rest of it. And there's a line in there in which the poet says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Anybody here prone to wander? Do you have a friend who's prone to wander? Anybody here prone to wander? We all are. And she finishes it and she looks at him. Uh, she's so, she says, this is summarizing what I'm experiencing. And she turns and is shocked because he's weeping. And she says, what's wrong? And he says, I wrote that. And I've wandered. And this young believer spoke to this ex-pastor and said, would you look at that last line? Uh, that third line in, let's go back, streams of mercy never ceasing. Robert, there's streams. And I'm going to tell you, it's, uh, it's not sips, it's streams. And if we had time, and I was omniscient, I would call out every one of your names right now and say, Jesus died for you. Charlotte, Jesus died for you. David, Jesus died for you. And you and I say, but, mm, streams of mercy never ceasing. And I want you to remember, it's, it's a step of obedience. This is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. He said, eat and drink and remember where your hunger and thirst belong. So we're going to take some time. We'll go a little bit over. But we're not going to do, and again, nothing wrong with how we normally do communion. We're just doing it differently. But I do want to say it was a meal. It was during the meal Jesus did this. They didn't just take one bite. They ate. They drank. They ate and remembered his broken body years later. They, they sipped and remembered his shed blood. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray for you, and then you can come. Here or in, in between the aisles, and you can find different stations, come up, take a napkin, and then take a piece of bread and a cup. And we're not going to dismiss you by row, and you don't need to all come at once. We're going to give some time, some lingering time. This is not the drive-through. You and I are coming into the restaurant. And then take that bread and that cup back to your seat. 
And maybe even say to someone on the way or somebody sitting next to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. He's bread, he's wine. He's the way maker. And the way, that, that dirt road I showed you, I stayed on that, I bet it was for a mile. And marveled at streams of mercy. When I'm looking at the grain and looking at the grape and realizing it's a reminder of His sacrifice, but also His sustenance and His satisfaction. So come and take some big bites and some gulps. And every time you take a bite, hear Jesus saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you take a, a sip, hear Him. This is my blood shed for you. Confess your sin. Receive His grace. Receive what you're ultimately hungry for. That you may live. Be active, not passive. Sit at this table. And let's commune together. Let's sacrament together. Let's mass together. Let's commune together. Jesus, I thank you for these men and women. Even those online, I'd encourage them to find a large cup of some juice and maybe a big piece of bread. We're hungry people. And we navigate through a world that's constantly trying to seduce us, that it can supply what we're hungry and thirsty for. And Jesus, you said, what we're hungry and thirsty for is only going to come through you. Revival needs to happen in this nation. It needs to happen in churches. It needs to happen first in our lives. Returning to our first love, moving past ritual, going to relationship and intimacy, and experiencing your enoughness, your lavish grace. So may we take bites and savor. May we take big sips and even gulps and savor. And hear you speak your love and your way and your truth and your life into us. Now feed us. Quench us. Satisfy us. Let's come.